Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the pubcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. I'm here today with Dr. Uh, Zach Lohman. Um, Zach and his team uh, picked out about, uh, I guess it's 10 or 11 uh, abstracts of interest. And uh, today for the first one, we're going to be uh, interviewing Emily Boot from North Carolina State. Welcome, yes, Emily. Yes, thank you. And uh, her advisor, uh, Ramon Malares, uh, also from NC State, obviously. Uh, Ramon, tell us a little bit about Emily and uh, what makes her special. Oh, it's <laughs> very special. First of all, she came from Michigan. Uh, yeah, that's where, yep, that's where I did my undergrad. Uh, uh, Michigan State? Yes. Yeah. Good. And uh, Amy comes to me with a proposal to work with the reproduction. That's very nice. And Amy have been a very good student this day, until these days. Yeah, I mm -hmm. hope you keep like that. <laughs> and uh, we have uh, developed a work with the hoosters to evaluate the quality of the sperm, quality of those hoosters for the master. and. In the future, you're going deep on this to evaluate the spam quality, the testicles development, because this, that, these days is a kind of issue for the industry that go to low fertility, especially in the broiler breeders. Yeah. Excellent. So tell us a little bit more about your uh, research paper that uh, you pre you've presented it already. Yes, I presented yesterday. And we looked at the differences between uh, egg production, egg fertility, and rooster fertility between nipple drinker lines and bell drinker lines. So, and the big thing that we saw was that our egg fertility was higher in the nipple drinker lines at the end of the flock cycle. So we think it's a good way for producers to improve egg fertility numbers in their late age flocks. Yeah, so now why were those better? Why was fertility better? That's a great question. So we took blood samples earlier in the study that way we can run blood biochemistry to determine. But my hypothesis right now is that the bell drinkers just allow more bacteria into the bell drinker, whereas the nipple drinkers have the closed system. And the nipple drinkers we were using were gender specific from Ziggity. And we believe that that has a component added in that the roosters weren't able to drink out of the hen drinkers. And so it kept them uh, it, it allowed the hens to actually have access to those drinkers more often and gave the roosters more chance to have their own water line. Interesting. So did y'all look at any actual bacteria counts or anything in the environment or in the waters? We did not take samples for that, but we could do that in our next flock. And I think that would be a really valuable way to go. So I used to do quite a bit with ducks and ducks, everybody thinks needs lots of water. And I actually did a very similar trial and uh, we looked at litter moisture and bacterial counts and everything and it's all similar to what yeah. you saw. Yeah, I actually did an internship at Maple Leaf. Hmm. And when I was there, I mean, a lot of people in the industry were pushing for, oh, well, they need duck ponds to improve yeah. fertility. But there we weren't necessarily seeing that. We were seeing that there was the higher bacterial load, which was discouraging egg production. So I can agree with that. Yeah. So any plans to follow up on this study? So you're uh, in your, you're going to be defending your master's here soon. What's your plans after that? Going to continue this research? Yeah. So we have a trial plan for my PhD and it won't be looking at the difference of water quality, but we'll be looking at the differences of different antioxidants in the feed to see if bre uh, breeder fertility is improved through that. Um, we're looking at a couple different feed additives, one being fish meal, um, another one being ashwagandha. 
that we've seen good results with fish meal earlier in my master's and we've, we're hoping to see good results in chickens like we do in human medicine. Very interesting. Ramon, uh, uh, Emily, pleasure meeting you guys today. Okay. Thanks for joining us here at the Real Science Exchange and uh, uh, have a good week. Okay, awesome. my pleasure, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Welcome to the next generation in chelated minerals. Introducing new Keysher Plus amino acid chelated minerals from Balchem. Keysher Plus delivers a higher concentration of mineral with a superior amino acid profile. The higher mineral content adds formulation flexibility, opening up space in the ration, and also reduces the carbon footprint. The superior amino acid profile delivers 28% protein from microbial biomass and reduces the amount of supplemental lysine needed in the ration. The Keysure Plus line also offers a granulated form for improved handling characteristics and reduced dust. Visit Balchem.com to see how new Keysure Plus can deliver the added benefits you need to improve performance and reduce manufacturing hurdles. Welcome back, everyone. Back again, once again, with Dr. Uh, Zach Lohman. You've been a been a mainstay this week for me. <laughs> Appreciate all the help. Um, we're also here with Catherine Fudge from University of Georgia. Um, Catherine, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Glad to have you here. Thank you. So, uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. You um, don't have to talk about the Grand Canyon, but there's a good story in there, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. I did not grow up in poultry or anything related to it. And then I ended up going into kind of a ag background in high school with FFA. And I met Lynn Worley Davis at the FFA convention. And she was like, do you like poultry? And I said, I don't, I don't know anything, but I like eating it. <laughs> and she was like, great, let's take you into a poultry one-on-one class. And I was like, okay. And so from there, it just kind of whirled me into the whole poultry world that I had absolutely no idea existed at all. Um, and I met Robert Beckstead, who was running a lab at NC State at the time, and he got me into histaminiasis. I started learning about turkey diseases and protozoal pathogens, and I realized I wanted to dive as deep as I physically could into this world. So I ended up doing my master's there on that disease, and now I am at UGA with Dr. Sean Chin, working on histaminiasis in broiler breeders and trying to develop like an infectious model for broiler breeders since they're also experiencing mortality from that disease. So, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about histaminiasis? So, <laughs> yes. Histaminiasis is a wonderful disease, at least I think it is. <laughs> um, it's caused by Histomonas meleagridis, which it was first discovered in 1892 or three. And it was a old world pathogen that came here by way of pheasants, gold-necked pheasants, or ring-necked pheasants, excuse me. And they brought histomonas here, and within about 20 years, it totally decimated the turkey industry, because turkeys are a new world bird coming in contact with an old world pathogen. Um, and so some really great minds at Cornell ended up discovering what it was and dubbing it histomonas meleagridis. And by the 60s, we had a really great treatment for it, azoles, dimetridazole, metronidazole, um, and those were really effective until the 2000s when Europe and the U.S. banned them because of their arsenic-based compounds. 
And so now we don't have any treatments available for this disease. And in the last seven years, there have been roughly 800 outbreaks of this disease leading to millions of turkeys being lost. Um, and now- And that's globally? That's probably within just the US that okay. I know of. Um, I know that France and Germany and Poland also have this issue. It's all over the world. Pretty much anywhere where there are galliforms, there will be histomonas as well. Um, so it's, it's pretty global. Um, but in the last couple years, broiler breeders have also reported losses in the first four to six weeks of age, 10 to 12%, which for turkeys, they're like, okay, we're losing 100%. So, but a broiler breeder is worth so much money, uh, even small losses mean a lot for us. So we're really trying to collaborate with both turkeys and chickens to figure out, you know, what's going on. Why is this disease so intense? Why is it so pathogenic? And how can we control it? Mm -hmm. And new new ways to try and combat this disease. So sometimes it's a little bit non-traditional the ways we go about it. Yeah. So you have a poster here at the, uh, yes. the meetings. Tell us a little bit about that, the research that you've done for that. Right. Okay. So my lab is an extension lab. And so with extension comes a lot of contact with outside entities. You talk to a lot of growers. You find out what they're doing. And we had a grower reach out to us and tell us that he'd made some really interesting observations about the type of shavings he was using in his house. And he mentioned that whenever he would place cedar shavings in his house, he noticed a drop in his insect population, which I mentioned insects because insects are actually what carry histomonas into chicken or turkey houses by way of the vector Heterachus gallinarum, but in a roundabout way, they carry histomonas. So he noticed that he controlled his outbreaks when he used cedar. And so we kind of wanted to look a little more into that because, you know, anecdotal evidence out in the field is something that should never be ignored. You know, farmers always make these really interesting comments and you stop and go, I never thought about doing that before. That's, that's great. So you want to take it back to the lab and test it and see if, you know, you can back it with science. Um, and right now it's very preliminary. We've done just a few small like benchtop studies where we've looked at using cedar to repel darkling beetles over a very short time period. And we have seen that c cedar shavings, um, as well as cedar extracts, do have some uh, repellency type uh, responses to darkling beetles, as well as some larval toxicity possibly. Um, it need, we need to do a lot more research before we can make any kind of claim on like whether this will work or not. Um, but I think it's something really interesting that we could look deeper into. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So do you see a difference between the extracts and actual cedar shavings? So extract, let's see, how do I put this? The cedar shavings themselves contain the volatile compounds that the extract also contains because you have to press the tree to pull the extract out. But once the extract is removed from the fiber of the tree, it becomes more volatile. It can mm -hmm. like dissipate into the air mm -hmm. faster. So I'm sure you've like maybe smelled like uh, cedar wood furniture. Mm -hmm. It's really strong and it stays really strong for like years. Mm -hmm. And it's because the fibers within the tree are actually able to hold those volatile compounds in and not allow them to all dissipate at once. But when they're free, they like yeah. go, they volatilize, yeah. yeah. So they don't hold as long. Mm. So I'm looking a little more further into using cedar shavings because yep. it's something that I think would hold longer. But I, I don't know how it will hold up to windrowing, decaking, or you know, just long-term use in a house. I don't know 
will feces have an impact on the volatile compounds or destroy it? I'm not sure. So I need to know a lot more before I... Yeah, so you know. along those lines, what's your next research study look like? Um, if I had all the money in the world. <laughs> <laughs> what I would do right now is I'm hoping to be able to actually put cedar shavings down in pens um, and put beetle traps down and count beetles weekly and see, you know, compare pine shavings in pens with live birds on it compared to cedar shavings with live birds on it and see what the beetle counts look like so I can compare the differences and then also do longer term studies to see if it impacts um, egg hatchability, if it impacts uh, going from larval to adult stages. And if they, one of the things I want to look at too is instars, which the instar is the life, the life cycle of the larva. So it will go through three instars and that's pretty much like a shedding and then a regrowth. And so if we can control the instar or stop them at an instar, which we do have insect growth regulators, IGRs, that do that, where they pretty much prevent the larva from becoming an adult beetle. If we have something along those lines, we can combine cedar shavings with something like an insecticide that will then kill the larva because the larva are a lot easier to kill than the adult because mm. the adults have a very hard chitin outer shell and they're really tough, but if you can destroy the soft larva, it's much easier. Mm. Yep. Catherine, this has been a a great interview. Thank yes, you for joining you. us today. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Appreciate it. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Lisa Belke from NC State. Lisa, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Thanks. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about the presentation that uh, you've given here at the uh, uh, meetings. Um, so I talked about uh, feed additives in, yeah. in poultry and mostly about how um, we, the health side of them, I guess. There's a lot of types of feed additives. We can use them for nutrition and all sorts of things, but um, I work in poultry health. So yeah. that's definitely what I talked about and the different types of feed additives and kind of what they can do and what they can't do and sort of how we should maybe limit our expectations on them. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of which ones you were looking at? Yeah, so I've done a lot of classes. probiotics yeah. um, are the big one that I talk about the most because that's where I have all of the experience. But of course, there's also um, organic acids and okay. um, immune system modulators and antibiotics. Of course, there's still feed additives and we could still use them. So medications to to um, to treat disease in birds. And um, I think I think that's about it. I may have added something else in there, but it's been a minute. So okay. <laughs> that kind of hits all the high points. Yeah. 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 So what are some of the key findings you shared with the audience? Um, well, so the big thing is that number one, when, when birds are sick, um, if antibiotics are the thing that we need to treat them with, then we should definitely consider antibiotics. But the big thing to think about is how prevention is the best key to keeping healthy birds. And, um, and really we can use the feed additives, probiotics, symbiotics, our organic acids, whatever it is, essential oils. Um, we can use them to prevent disease so that we don't need the antibiotics or the medications. And, um, I guess one of the other kind of soapboxes that I get on when it comes to feed additives is that, you know, whenever uh, for a while, and it's kind of dying down a little bit, but for a while, you know, producers or veterinarians, um, would want, say, a probiotic that would fix all of their bacterial problems because they thought of antibiotics as like this one thing that would fix all of it. But in reality, 
we had a bunch of different antibiotics, right? There's a long list of antibiotics that could go into birds. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't put probiotics on an unfair playing field. And we should say, okay, we've got a probiotic that treats clostridial diseases, and we've got a probiotic that can help with E. coli, and it's gonna take multiple things. And, and that people need to consider whenever they're doing any of these feed additives, what am I treating? What fits in within my system? Um, what is going to help manage the problems that, that I have with my birds so that we can actually set these feed additives up for success and, and preventing the disease. Okay. Yeah. So if I hear what you're saying, it sounds like you're gonna use uh, blends of these different, uh, yeah. And, and so it seems like it'd be very difficult uh, taking a look at each and every farm and saying, what are the problems there and coming up with that special cocktail that's gonna work, is that? Right, well, so actually, fortunately, I just talked to a vet give a talk this afternoon about um, the kind of how they work. And she, she gave me some good words here. So the thing is that the, the vets are in, in the barns with these birds on a regular basis. And so they kind of know what their problems are. They know what to expect. They know what systems they're running. They hardly ever actually see a new disease come in. So whenever they know what's going on and they've had some time to do some kind of um, trial and error type things, they're gonna figure out what's happening in their barns and they know what to expect. They actually hardly ever get surprises when it comes to the diseases that they have to deal with um, in their flocks. So they can figure it out. And, and the reality is that most of them do have kind of these blends of things that they know are gonna help. They're gonna say, okay, you know, early, Early, our birds are going to be susceptible to E. coli, maybe, and then come in at about two weeks of age. We've got to worry about the clostridial diseases. So we're going to kind of do this combination of things to keep that calm and get the birds through three or four weeks of age. And then they're at risk for something else. So we might have to switch over a little bit. I mean, they, they know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do, do you recommend like um, having like a summer cocktail blend and a winter one? Does it change? season or is it more once you figure it out you're good to go um it probably depends on the pathogen mm -hmm. right so we've we've definitely got some pathogens um especially the parasites mm -hmm. that are susceptible to the weather um and so so that is going to change based on that and and it might even change um based on your hatchery and, and mm -hmm. what kind of condition your birds are coming in from the hatchery um and then you know if you've got if you've got birds on an ionophore versus a chemical versus vaccination for, for Imeria, you know, that's all gonna change the conditions within the gut. So sort of the seasons, but also the seasons of what else are yep. you doing to the birds at that at that time of year, yeah. Do uh, uh, chickens build up resistance, or not the chickens, but pathogens build up resistance to these interventions? Um, I haven't seen it a whole lot. So there are some that we kind of have to worry about a little bit and they tend to be things like um, bacteriophages. Um, and, and that's because the, um, the bacteria can develop resistance to bacteriophages really quickly. Now, now we know that. So there's strategies with developing bacteriophage products to help overcome that resistance that we know is gonna happen. But in terms of, of some of these, um, you know, like the essential oils or, um, the, although some of these are new enough that maybe they haven't been around a long time, right? Because the technology to effectively apply an essential oil is just now kind of evolving. But we, I don't know that anybody has ever said, yeah, that worked for a long time and now suddenly it just quit because nobody's been using it for a long time yet. Um, with, now probiotics have been around for dozens of years now and I've never heard anybody say, 
our probiotic failed because bacteria have developed some other way to work around that probiotic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they haven't, I've not heard that yet. Since we kind of close things down here, Lisa, um, any kind of words of wisdom for life production managers out there? Um, yeah, I already said it. Prevention is the best key. Okay. Um, so, and also, um, you know, work, make sure you're working with a feed additive that has some science behind it. I mean, I'm a scientist, so I'm gonna say some science behind it. Yeah. Um, like, like, don't just, don't just take the word of the technical manager, like go look at the data. I, it drives me nuts to look at advertisements and see where they've got references. And I look at those references and it's an abstract. It's yeah. not, you know, actual, like a full research study that was peer reviewed and published and put out there. Um, it's, it's an abstract and I can submit anything on an abstract. Well, not anything, but I can submit yeah. an abstract and, and present it and it's not been peer reviewed. And it, they could criticize the heck out of it at the presentation and nobody believes it, but that yeah. abstract's published. So, um, you know, really look for the peer review, more than one, um, kind of go through that data. And it can be hard to read data if you're not used to it, but at least look for it and see is there at least plenty of stuff out there that's, um, you know, really hard science on it and not um, just something that was put together and, and you know, put in a box or a bag and, and sold to you. Yep, makes yeah. perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, today. thank you. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. All right, we're back with Kyle Venter from the University of Pretoria. Kyle, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Thank you, Scott. Thank so you. tell us a little bit about yourself, right? I think you're the only South African we've got uh, on, on tap here uh, this week, so. Yep, so I come from South Africa. I'm a student at the University of Pretoria, yeah. and I also run um, and manage the Neuro Livestock Research, uh, research Unit yeah. in Johannesburg, so yeah. Uh, Great to be at PSA and to be talking again on the big stage. Yeah, good. Yeah. So tell us about the uh, the Neuro Livestock uh, Center. What is it? Yeah. Neuro Livestock. So yeah. what what we do at Neuro Livestock Research? It's a research site that is uh, we our fundamental research is based on mineral nutrition itself, okay. uh, as well as integrating into commercial application. So okay. a big focus of us is commercializing and developing a digestible calcium system. Okay. And also with that, the focus is to reduce the dependence on inorganic trace minerals as well as inorganic ma macro minerals themselves. Okay, interesting. So, yeah. Oh, very so, interesting. Hmm. And that kind of leads to the paper that, or uh, the presentation that you yes. had this week. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that? Yeah, so the presentation I focused on this week was reducing the independence of rock phosphate itself. Okay. As you know, rock phosphates have gone up because of supply and demand because of the global shipping crisis and the Russian-Ukrainian war, but there's also massive pressure from a sustainability perspective. So um, a lot of it ties in with maximizing nutrients, and I say nutrients, I mean macromineral digestibility itself, and also then in turn reducing antagonisms and allowing one to reduce microminerals. Okay. Yeah, using highly bioavailable forms. So yeah, that's what we, that's what we present on this week. Um, so yeah, some exciting stuff. And so where's most of the phosphate coming out of? You mentioned the Ukraine and Russia. Is that where a lot of it comes a out? A lot of it comes out of there. There's also a lot of phosphate reserves in Morocco, um, China doing a lot of exports at the moment. But um, with supply and demand, and because there's so much competition between the various agricultural sectors, um, it obviously drives the price up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And then you also mentioned that there are there's some phosphates that are, are more bioavailable than others. Can you tell us about that? Um, 
Yeah, so you, you obviously got your various forms of rock phosphate, so your MCPs and MDCPs um, that have different digestibility coefficients. But what we're focusing on is maximizing the digestibility of the phosphorus from the actual raw materials themselves. Okay. So by doing that, improving phytase efficiency, um, hydrolyzing the phytate and making the phosphorus that's not available to the bird actually available to the bird. Um, and there's a few ways of doing that, such as reducing calcium, um, that has a detrimental effect on your phosphorus utilization. Okay. So that's a few strategies that we discussed in the talk. Um, yeah, that's the main premise is to maximize the phosphorus in the actual feed ingredients themselves. Okay. Yeah. So you had an interesting chart up. Actually, I think I saw it two weeks ago when uh, in, uh, where was that, Italy, with yes, Rosalina yes. had Yes, with Rosalina. And how many yeah. samples are in that? It was, there's, it was there's hundreds, wasn't it? There's 55 limestone samples. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's with our digestible calcium. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, in the determination of the limestone prediction equation, mm -hmm. there's 55 samples. And it's, I think it's 782 data points that yeah. we use to develop the prediction equation. So it's a, it's a lot of data. Yeah. So to date, it's the most robust limestone prediction equation. And we're adding more to it as we go on. So we've got some studies lined up for the end of the year. And yeah, we'll be adding to that. So, yeah. Yeah. So that that I don't know that chart just every time I see it just blows me away. Just how it's, it's all over. How variable mm. it's. Yeah. It's it's yeah. It's very variable limestone. So. Place there's such an emphasis on getting a robust, accurate prediction equation for it. A lot of people think it's just limestone, it's like all the same. And exactly. Really exactly. It's not. Yeah. Interesting. So, what were some of the key takeaways you had for the audience? Uh, so, um, some of the key takeaways was that to maximize phosphorus digestibility, one has to control calcium digestibility itself. Yep. and have an understanding on the limestone quality. And when I say quality, I mean the characteristics that define the phosphorus digestibility in the diet. So solubility speed, GMD, um, one has to maximize phytase efficacy by selecting the correct limestone. Um, yeah, once you've, once you've maximized phosphorus digestibility from the diet, then one has to formulate to the bird's actual calcium and phosphorus requirements on a digestible basis. So I know in the US, a lot of commercial nutritionists are still on a total calcium available phosphorus system. If we want to reduce the dependence on rock phosphates, we have to move to a digestible system for calcium and phosphorus. Um, that's, that's a massive one. And I think one has to relook at the paradigm of microminerals themselves. We in diets that are high in phytase, low in calcium and phosphorus, so we're reducing those antagonisms, and we have more highly bioavailable forms of these microminerals. So reducing the levels using high, highly available microminerals is a great strategy at improving the sustainability and reducing the dependence of inorganic trace minerals themselves. Yeah, makes a lot yeah. of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you for that. Um, so you're working on your PhD now. Yes. And yep. plan Finish to uh, defend when? Um, early next year. Early so next that's year. The plan. Yeah. And then the plan after that. So the plan after that is to continue as the innovation manager at Neuro Livestock Research. Okay. So we've got a few exciting projects lined up. Um, yeah. Watch the space. There's some exciting <laughs> stuff to come. Oh, outstanding. So, yeah. Well, good. I'm sure you're going to be very successful, Cal. Very bright young man. Appreciate you uh, well, spending some time with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank, right, you. thank you. Have a good one. Welcome back, everyone. We're here uh, once again with um, Dr. Zach Lohman, co-host uh, special today. 
Um, and we've got uh, Dr. Ken Macklin from was Auburn and now at Mississippi State, the department head there. And then we got Leticia Orajana. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? All right. <laughs> and uh, so first of all, Ken, I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit about uh, maybe your transition from working with okay. Leticia here and now now department head over there at uh, uh, City State. Okay. Well, at Auburn, I was a extension specialist and a researcher. Uh, my area was really microbiology now in general. Now, in the extension side, you know, I pretty much worked on whatever issue was out there within the, the broiler industry, the poultry industry. Um, and one of the issues that we've been having lately, as, as anyone who works with broilers knows, is the number of eggs that we can get out of the breeder, the breeders. Uh, not only the number of eggs, the hatchability, uh, that thing, I can't even think of everything. Yeah, fertility, fertility e yeah. everything coming from, from the breeder side. Uh, so we had an opportunity to do some research where we uh, were gonna look at different egg quality parameters to see if it impacted hatch. Uh, and then Leticia could probably go into a little bit more detail about that when we get to her. But uh, when I left Auburn to go to Mississippi State, that's part of my program that I'd like to continue on because they do have some nice hatcheries uh, there in the department of poultry science here at Mississippi State. Um, we do have some expertise in this area there. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of poultry companies that are very interested to work with us. Yeah. So. so you mentioned Leticia. She's uh, second year in the master's program. What can you uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about her? Oh, Leticia. I was going to let Leticia talk about it, but Leticia, she came <laughs> to me. Um, really, we were going to do some micro. We we're going to do egg uh, hatchery sanitation. However, like I said, this opportunity came up and we, we kind of said, well, we'll give it a shot and maybe, you know, put the uh, sanitation on the, the afterburner or the side burner. And uh, we got some really exciting results, like really exciting. Where we performed this study now a few different times and got some very encouraging uh, data from it. Um, not saying that hatchery sanitation isn't important because it is. But this is more of a hot topic that I feel we, a niche that we could fill right now. So I'm very excited. And okay. She's been a great addition to the team and, and she'll be great no matter what she's decided to do moving forward. Yeah, Looking excellent. To see what happens. So Atisha, I actually uh, attended your presentation. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Is that correct? Yesterday morning. And so why don't you go through some of the key things that you uh, shared with the audience uh, with your presentation? Okay, well, I started mentioning that here in the U.S., we are selling about 244 million eggs per week. Okay. So that's... That's a lot. That's, that's a lot, yes. And the average hatchability reported by the USDA National Agricultural Statistical Service was of 79.5% last week. Okay. So when we see a 79% of hatchability, we know that we need to improve it, you know? So... Uh, and, and is that going up or down over time? A little bit. Okay. So there, there is some variation, but no, you will not see a, you know, like a 10% variation. No, it's, it's not like that. We see variations according to per, per week, but no, no high variation, maybe 0.2% or 0.5 maybe. But yeah, so hatchability is actually right now a, 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 big, a big, a hot topic. So everybody is interested in, in, in implementing new strategies to address this, this issue. So, uh, as we know, that there are several factors that may be affecting hatchability. I mean, we think about the environmental conditions, the 
management at the period farms, the incubation conditions, a lot of things. But this research is focused on the actual quality. So <clears throat> we truly believe that furthering our understanding of how the actual is related, the actual issues are related with a hatchability will, will help us to uh, create or design more uh, strategies to address these issues through nutrition or through better management or better strategies at the management. So we think that this uh, research that is focused on understanding these actual issues is, is a very good baseline for furthering uh, applications in the, furthering strategies in the, in the industry. So uh, this research is studying translucency and a color, actual color intensity. So translucency is when we, I think that the, the term that, that the industry is using is windows, mm -hmm. right? So when we candle an egg, we can see uh, that there are some eggs that have more windows or watermarks or uh, clear spots. It depends on how you wanna describe them. And some of them have more windows than others. So it is thought that this issue, these, these windows, are caused by the accumulation, the moisture accumulation on the eggshell and an uneven drying after the egg is laid. So it has been reported to affect bacterial penetration and also to affect thickness and strength. And recently we just published a paper where we demonstrate that the translucency is also related with hatchability. We found in that, in that, in that paper that the difference between uh, low translucent eggs and high translucent eggs was about 7% hatchability. So that's a lot, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about hatch offset. So it's a lot of hatchability, a lot of difference. So I'm going to assume the high translucency has lower... Lower, lower exactly. Yeah. So, um, and also it's related with cheek weight and about the color intensity, which is the other actual quality uh, parameter that we are analyzing. So we know that the actual, the, the color of the actual depends on the breed. There are breeds that are breeds for uh, genetics for brown eggs or for white eggs. But when we go to the field of a, a breeder farm, we can see that there is a variation in the color intensity. Some eggs are a little bit more, I don't know, lighter or mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can tell in the, in the field. So we are trying to study uh, to evaluate if, if there is any uh, correlation of this of this incidence of, of color intensity with hatchability, with uh, um, cheap wave and moisture loss, etc. So um, actually, in the paper that we published, we also found a difference there. That is, that is, there is a correlation of, of, of color intensity where darker color eggs have better hatchability too. It's pretty interesting. Well, but the, about the, the, the research that I presented yesterday, this was more focused on understanding how the translucency and the color intensity is related with other actual quality parameters, but taking into, taking into account uh, external and internal. So for external actual quality parameters, we consider the egg weight, the actual thickness, the strength, and the ultrastructure and the actual weight. And for internal quality of the egg, we consider the gel color and the high units or, or HU value. So we analyze, uh, I don't know if you, how into details you want to go into the methodology, but uh, we use a total of 270 eggs for this trial. We use an old flock because we believe, we have seen and we know that the old, as, as the flock is aging, 
is where we start to see more issues in actual okay. quality. Mm -hmm. So we decided to run this trial, for, I mean, first with an old flock, and I mean, we are planning, using the plants that we want to <laughs> do this thing with, with younger flocks to see how is the, how, how, or the hypothesis is that maybe the problem is the same, but we need to, you know, actually test this. And yeah, so we use, we classify eggs by translucency, and we classify eggs by color intensity, and we evaluated the, 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 the parameters that I just mentioned. And as a result, I mean, in a, as a brief summary on the results, so we found that this is pretty interesting. <clears throat> that uh, translucent eggs, low translucent eggs, the ones that have less watermark or less windows, these eggs um, have a thinner eggshell and have a lower eggshell weight. Mm. So, but the thing is, in the past, in, in previous research, we reported that these eggs have better hatchability and better chick weight. And, you know, it made you think that how a, an egg that has better hatchability, better chick weight, uh, is actually having a thinner eggshell and an and an eggshell with less weight. So we know that the, the chicks get uh, their nutrients from the yolk, from the albumen, and from the eggshell, you know? Well, so the other interesting factor that we found in this research is that actually these eggs have a better HU value, which means a better inner quality. So uh, what we are thinking here is that these low translucent eggs even when they have a thinner eggshell and a lower eggshell uh, weight, mm -hmm. they are capable to uh, maintain the quality of the egg, of the inner egg for longer or better than the low translucent egg. And this is important uh, for the um, for the embryo for the gas and exchange. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm gas exchange yeah. from mm -hmm. from the inner side of the embryo to the outside. Uh, yeah. So regarding translucency, we are very excited about. Uh, continue evaluating these results. Um, what else? Oh, about translucency. Another thing that we think is that uh, the translucency is more related with the inner membrane, more than with the eggshell. Mm -hmm. So the inner membrane, we are thinking that the inner membrane of the egg, of a low translucent egg, is has a better quality, which means that the egg is have a better uh, Gas, ex ex gas exchange ratio, um, I don't know if that's the proper term, but you know, have a better uh, capacity to uh, maintain the good uh, circulation for the embryo development. Uh, so yeah, so it seems like there is a lot of things that we still need to understand about translucency because physiologically we still do not know exactly what is happening inside of the hand that is creating this, this, um, this translucency. Uh, but right now, there are some, uh, 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 actually, there are the already um, companies working in some, designing some minerals to uh, improve this issue, and there are, I mean, they have had good results, but we still do not know the explanation, the, the, you know, exactly what is happening inside of the hand that is uh, uh, creating this, uh, these issues with transparency. So that's why we are right now working on uh, trying to understand how translucency may be correlated with other actual uh, quality parameters in the in inside of the egg and whatever that we can understand. So then we can have a better idea of how or how to go into the chicken and try to understand where the issues form. So I think it's 
So do you have some hypothesis? Is it perhaps uh, health status, inflammation, perhaps even stress? Stress, yes. Yes, well, we, uh, all that you have mentioned, we think that maybe affecting, but also, and we, what we believe is that the hen somehow understands that it's having an issue okay. with translucency and it's concentrated her, um, her nutrients or her, it's trying to improve the inner membrane of the shell in order to protect his embryo, you know? So it's like, because, I don't know, it's, it's some ideas that we have, but we need to prove this. We need to uh, run more experiments and go more into this. But I think this is a very, very interesting topic. It's a, I would say that it's recently applied. I mean, we, you, I'm pretty sure that in the past, this, this translucency was not an important uh, parameter for eggs. It was most, maybe it was most uh, studied in table eggs, the ones that we eat, because I mean, when you go to the supermarket and you see a like an egg that is like you know looks yeah. weird and has like a thin like a watermark, you immediately think that it's not a good egg. Yeah. So maybe people was more worried there, but now we are moving that to, to breeder eggs, and I think it's, it has a big potential. And and you know, hatchability is a hot topic. Yeah. It is a hot topic now. Leticia, probably most of it. The reason why you're seeing this different translucency is stress of the bird, because you know when we did the study, they were birds that came from the same primary breeder company, mm -hmm. raised under similar management. I mean, different farms, uh, but we were seeing different translucent eggs from different birds, obviously, but also some uh, flocks had better eggs, less translucency mm -hmm. than others, and it's probably something we, we hypothesize it's stress, yeah. as well as potentially maybe. Uh, nutrition as well. We're not nutritionists. So yeah. Do you think there could be a genetic component to it? Because, you know, some egg size or egg shape is kind of, once the female starts laying one, she kind of lays, if it's an oblong one, she'll usually keep laying those. Do you think it's kind of a, do you think it's more just what is going on in the environment that she didn't form it correctly that day? And that's one, that's a good question. And that's one that we're going to be looking into in the future, because we looked at you know, I think you mentioned in your study, we looked at avian's birds, mm -hmm. and we'd like to look at cobs as well as the other breeds that are out there, just to see if that, you know, what we saw with these 708s, these older birds, can we see that in 708s with younger hens? Yep. Uh, will it translate to, you know, cob, or even to other avian, like the 308? So, yep. I mean, there's, there could be, we just don't know. I, yep. I would imagine, I would think that there is, uh, but we, we don't know at this point yep. in time. Yeah. Well, Leticia, that was a very nice presentation that you gave. A great uh, uh, podcast here as well. Kind of curious, what's the future uh, look like for you? Uh, what's your what your future schooling plans? Well, <laughs> um, I I have been enjoying working in research. I really enjoy uh, um, this topic, and I would like to continue. Uh, I mean furthering the research on these topics with a PhD. Okay. Right now, I'm, I am in a, I don't know, I think that all the students in one point of their life, yeah. they have that <laughs> weird moment when they they feel that they know what their their feelings, but they also have the, the idea that maybe, um, you know, what about going to the industry and then go back to the, yeah. to the school and, you know? So the only thing that I can tell is 
for sure, is that I like research. Yeah. I enjoy what I'm doing. And in the future, I wish I can uh, work uh, in, uh, in a university as a professor or as an extensionist. Yeah. I really think that uh, I, I like and I enjoy this, this part of my life. And what I only think is that sometimes maybe the experience in the, in the field may help you to have a better uh, critical thinking for future research. So that's why I'm still like, not sure. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. so yeah. most likely I'm going to continue with my PhD and, and have, and actually I'm doing an internship right now oh. in the industry and enjoying and learning, so it's good. Oh, sounds like you got uh, your head on straight and uh, some good logic there. Whatever you decide to do, I'm sure it's gonna be a great success. So yeah. thank you thank and you. Good, luck, good luck in the future. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, back to, uh, with you here at the Poultry Science Meetings. Uh, I ran into a gentleman by the name, I believe your name is Ben. Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Dr. Benjamin Frank Franklin, and you're here at the uh, Poultry Science Meetings. Can you tell me what uh, brought you here today? Well, I was uh, curious. I saw all these uh, feathered creatures wandering in the door, and yeah, followed yeah. by uh, different uh, human beings, and yeah. I thought I'd investigate. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, doctor. Uh, what, what are, what's your doctorate in? Maybe poultry science, genetics? <laughs> <laughs> Heavens, no. I was given an honorary doctorate by the University of St. Andrews I see. in recognition of my work with lightning. Okay. Uh, and I didn't discover electricity, but I found that lightning was composed of electricity. Oh, very interesting. And that was a rather new finding. Prior to that, people thought lightning was an act of God, that God would hurl a lightning bolt down and strike those with whom he was displeased. Ah, oh, interesting. And I looked at um, static electricity, and I found uh, close to a dozen similarities between lightning and static. They both uh, emit a flash, they, they emit a cracking sound, They sometimes you can smell sulfur, they both could ignite gunpowder, they could both be passed through water and metal. And I reason that um, lightning was merely another form of electricity. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Now, I'm just kind of curious, back in your day, mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about agriculture industry. Um, well, once again, I was not uh, a producer. I was a consumer, a consumer I see. Of, yeah. uh, of good food. Um, uh, some of the other founders, uh, Mr. Washington and Mr. Adams and such, were farmers. Yeah. They were more directly involved with it. But I was uh, basically in involved in the consumption of food. Yeah. And the consumption of food greatly increased when I went to France in, 17, uh, in 1776. Ah. Interesting. So. <laughs> uh, great year, huh? Yes, indeed. Well, listen, I want to thank you for uh, stopping by and spending some time with us here My at the pleasure. Science Exchange. Enjoy your time in Philadelphia, right. sir. Thank you, Ben. Take care. Thank you. Our last call question is brought to you tonight by Puricol. Look to Puricol choline chloride from Balchem to deliver the highest standards of quality, backed by the strictest process controls, for a level of purity, safety, and consistency you won't find anywhere else. Well, Zach, welcome back. We're here uh, for this session with uh, Dr. Gary Athry and Kara Cash from uh, Texas A&M. I think you guys are the only Aggies we talked to this week. Uh, Gary, why don't you give us some background on your program there? Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for having us, first of all. You're very this welcome. Is, this is amazing. Um, so I'm a geneticist by training, and I lead the avian genetics and functional genomics lab there. So uh, our research interests are actually fairly broad. So we do things 
related to um, genomic architecture of complex traits in, in broilers, um, and then a lot of the gut health work. Um, and because we need a lot of data analysis to generate hypotheses, we are, we are into all kinds of big data types of uh, endeavors also. So it's, uh, it's uh, the engine, right? So we, we try to use experimental data and uh, you know, analyses to come up with new ideas and, and new hypotheses. So, um, so we are into different kinds of things. And, and currently my lab, we, we have um, six grad students, if I'm not forgetting anyone, hopefully. Uh, uh, and Kara is one of our new ones. So mm -hmm. yeah. very good. Well, Kara, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Now, your paper was uh, got an interesting title, The Effects of Broiler Breeder Fertility on Global Food Security. That's interesting and different. So why don't you tell us about that? Sure, so thank you for having me. Um, our project is data analysis based. So as we know, chicken is at the highest consumption that it has ever been in the United States. But in the broiler breeder, uh, in broiler breeders, we are experiencing declining fertility. And we know this problem exists, but we don't know how this declining fertility affects the production of the animals or our climate or the economy. So that's what our project is aiming to do, is to learn those effects so that we're better able to prepare and hopefully uh, hopefully fix the fertility issues, but mainly uh, to know where deficits may occur in broiler production. Okay. Now, where do you get all your data? So we have an industry partner in Texas. I cannot disclose the company, okay. all right. but um, the uh, poultry genetics have multiple layers of breeders, and we are able to get the level of broiler breeder data right before the actual broilers that, and chicken that we eat. So we're able to use that data, and I, in my project specifically, I use what's called a stock flow model and I use that data with a 1 to 5% decline in fertility along with feed information on um, the daily feed um, of the breeders to determine how that fertility decline is affecting the number of broilers that we will have in the next 10, 20, even 50 years. Oh, very interesting. Well, can you share with us some of the results you've uh, found so far? Sure. So um, one of the main things that I think is really important, especially when in our industry is sustainability. And with our for our declining fertility, we, we used a 1% to 5% decline. This is really conservative for the industry. The industry is facing even higher declines than this. But with this decline, I know that in the next 50 years, to maintain this production, we will need an excess of one5 million tons of feed and it will produce an excess greenhouse gas emissions of 4.7 million metric tons. So this is going to make a big impact on not just the producers but the consumers. So we're still looking at how the economic impacts, uh, the different economic impacts, but we know that we're going to need so much more feed and produce so much more greenhouse gases. Oh, interesting. So now you're not taking a look at all where the infertility or what's causing the infertility. You're just measuring the results of the infertility. No, this project is just looking at, yes, uh, basically uh, projections, this, yeah. this project. However, in our lab, we do have work uh, going on at the moment using um, basically looking at a sperm quality okay. in male uh, broiler breeders because we know that it's a male issue in the industry because okay. when the when we replace the males, 
the fertility spikes back up again. Okay. So the male's fertility, even in the past 10 to 50 years, has declined just more and more rapidly to a point where at about 60, 65 weeks, these broilers are producing, they're, they're at 50% decline fertility already at that point. And it's not economically feasible to continue feeding them and they're replaced in the industry. But we can't just keep replacing and replacing. We gotta get them somewhere. Right. So um, this fertility problem, is a problem and we need to have a solution for it soon. Yeah. Ah. So do you factor in different genetics in your model or do you focus just on a general de fertility decline across all of them? So um, we use the, the fertility data from the industry partner that we have. So that I would say that is genetic data, correct me it if is, I'm wrong. It is, so yes, so she's correct. Yep. So what happens is, you know, because um, you know, there's many producers and each mm -hmm. of them have their, you know, for the most part, they are using the same kinds of model, yep. but there are some variations. Uh, now, what I can tell you about the genetics is just talking to the primary breeders. Um, this is not data you'll find any in any public space, uh, of course, but but again, our numbers are, are very uh, optimistic yep. uh, in terms of the fertility decline. So their, their challenges are actually wor worse and comparable between the genetics companies. So, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, the, uh, what's causing the infertility? Is yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, so, so, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it kind of impacts many parts of how chickens are, are raised and how they're selected. Uh, so we've obviously emphasized the most economically important parts of the broiler carcass, which is the breast meat. Mm -hmm. and the feed efficiency that, that drives there. But, but along the way, we, we obviously, um, you know, de-emphasized many other life history traits. Right? So this, mm -hmm. this is not new. I mean, you know, this is something that people have been talking about for 30, 40 years. It also now. happens in most agriculture right. species so and it's, it's common. <laughs> well, it's, it's happening in humans as well. Yes. As, uh, yeah. so, so what happens is, you know, if you, if you take any natural organism, you have a decline in fertility over age. Mm -hmm. But we have shown, and other people have shown, for example, that in broilers, let's say, high uh, you know, performance broilers, we are contracting the timeline where they are hitting what we would, in say in humans, uh, you know, we would consider as an old age. Mm -hmm. yeah. So physiologically, they are getting old much faster because their metabolic rate has to be mm -hmm. so high. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so they, we have contracted their lifespan essentially, and we, we're seeing all the effects of of that at a much faster pace. So Carrie, you're a first year uh, master's student. What's What kind of future plans do you have for research? You gonna continue with this? Yeah, so uh, I've been able to share with y'all, you know, the feed and the greenhouse gas emissions that we can expect, but I'm very interested in the economic effects that this has because I like buying chicken and I wanna know how much my chicken's gonna cost. Mm -hmm. So I would like to continue doing research on that. My committee members, um, one of them is an agricultural economist. I'll be working with him on creating that price data. Um, but I will also be working with our lab that is using the, er, looking at the sperm to see the actual reason why this fertility is declining so much. Mm. So I'll continue doing these projections, but also trying to help at the same time. <laughs> And so what's Kara's future look like? Uh, what do you plan to do after you get your master's? I plan on being a data analyst. Okay. I thoroughly enjoy data analytics and I can definitely see myself working for 
maybe not necessarily a poultry company, but any type of agriculture company and performing their data analytics or bioinformatics work. Yeah, very well. Thank you, Kara. <laughs> thank you, Gary, for our pleasure. Today. Thanks so much for having us. A good one. Uh, thank you to our audience uh, as, as usual. We uh, appreciate you spending time with us here at the Real Science Exchange. We hope you learned something. I hope you had some fun. And I hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.